Lord Jesus, help us to hear your word, understand that it is superior to ours, obey you, Lord, love you, trust you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have to gather as your people, even in these unusual circumstances. Thank you for the faithfulness and the kindness of the congregation, Lord, that has sought to love you, serve you, and obey you, whatever comes our way. Help this message be part, Lord, of that obedience, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Are you well rested? 9 a.m. crowd showed up looking a little, little tired, probably in comparison to you. Welcome. My name is Bruce Garner. If you're here for the first time, uh, welcome. Before we look back in Scripture, I want to look back in very recent history. It was exactly a year ago today on a Saturday uh, that we received word both from authorities and from within our own congregation that meant that we suddenly had to close down that it would be safer to do so, and we sent you, I sent you a somewhat frantic email saying this is super strange, but we will only be online. We were ill-prepared, really, to be online at that point. Uh, I did the best I could to preach to a camera. I'll always regret and, and how well I was prepared for that, and I will always be grateful for your kindness not only on that Sunday, but on all the Sundays that have followed. It's been a year. It's been hard on us. But you've been faithful. You've been kind. You've shown, so many of you, you've shown what it really means to follow Christ. You've shown through your patience, through the fruit of the Spirit, beginning with love, that you really do know Jesus and that you're willing to put him ahead of yourself and you're willing to put the needs of others ahead of your own. So thank you. Uh, for some of you, though, none of us have enjoyed this, and I was really, uh, in the best possible sense of the word, I found this whole experience very humbling, especially in those early months. They don't mention pandemics in seminary. And I wrote a pretty stiff email to one of my mentors saying, all those years, all those classes, all those conversations, you never mentioned a word about this. He said, don't worry, it's in the curriculum now. I guess they'll want tuition money to take that class uh, as well. But you, you have taught me so much. I open the Bible. I have the privilege of opening the Bible with you and, and trying with God's help to teach you from the Scriptures. So many of you have shown me in life what it means to follow Jesus. Because one of the real problems that we have in contemporary Christianity, at least in the United States, is that people have made a decision, so-called, to ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins, but they've not truly in their heart decided to follow Him wherever He may lead. And I'm so blessed that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of you have shown that you are willing to follow Jesus, and you're also willing in love to bear with your brothers and sisters, and I'm just enormously grateful. There's been a lot of talk about Christian persecution and how hard it is to be a Christian in our day. So last week, a good friend asked me uh, really what I thought was a really good question. He said, Bruce, what do you think the hardest part of being a Christian is? And I thought about that and gave him an answer. I'd like you, all this talk about difficulty and even persecution for the faith, 
I'd like you in your little bubble there, the people you came to church with, just talk for a second how you would answer his question. The question again, before I turn you loose to talk among yourselves, if you're watching at home, discuss it with the people you're watching uh, the service with. What is the hardest thing about being a Christian? Don't tell me, just discuss it among yourselves for just a second. I hear laughter. That means somebody didn't find it hard at all to follow Christ. You got it? Okay. Here's my answer. I may be wrong. It'd be fascinating to have the technology to know. You can do this in a classroom now, just not here, to immediately know what your answers were. I wonder across two services and if the people who are joining us online were able to participate, I wonder how many different answers we would have to a probing and difficult question. What's the hardest part about being a Christian? Here's my answer. I think the hardest part about being a Christian is simply loving and trusting Jesus enough to do exactly what Jesus said. That's it. Because if you actually let Jesus, through the Word of God, speak for Himself, you don't make a Jesus according to your own understanding, you don't edit Jesus down to someone you feel comfortable listening to and following. If you really let Jesus speak for Himself, you take His simple instructions at face value, the things He says in many cases are not only difficult, they're impossible. For instance, Jesus said to love your enemies. Jesus said that when people persecuted you and reviled you, you should love them, pray for them, and actually rejoice because that would mean a greater reward for you someday, that you should see yourself as someone who stood in the line of the prophets who were persecuted for loving the truth and following God. You should, be, you should count it a privilege and rejoice for the privilege of earning future reward. Jesus said to the disbelief of many, that it was actually more of a blessing to give than to receive. He specifically said, don't store up treasures here on earth, store them up instead in heaven. He said that following him was simply the most important thing, and that if you loved anyone on earth, including those of your immediate family, if you loved them more than you loved him, you could not be his disciple. If you don't explain that away, if you don't edit him down, that's the hard part. And Jesus also says something very probing in the Gospel of John that once actually this verse, by the mercy of God, I didn't have a vision, but I did wake up out of a deep sleep with a verse on my mind which convicted me in high school and actually helped me turn my life around. Because in high school, I had become a bit of a Christian hypocrite. Have you known the kind? I was in church, I was singing the songs, I was occasionally teaching the youth group, but my heart was far from Jesus. As a ministry kid in the missionary's home, I had mastered continually outward obedience. I looked very respectable. I looked like my heart was following the Lord. My heart was very far from Him. I was doing the stuff. My heart wasn't with Him. And the verse that woke me up was a simple verse from the Gospel of John where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
So that means that in the hard things that Jesus commands you to do, if you have not yet come to the point where you are regularly obeying him in those hard instructions, he says, if you actually understand what I'm telling you, the deficit is in your love for me. If you loved me more, you would obey me in this area. And that's a really interesting way of looking at your Christian life because Jesus is Lord, meaning he's in charge of everything, and what we're particularly good at doing is putting Jesus in charge of some things and reserving a few others where we sincerely believe we know better. Wherever you happen to be disobeying Jesus, what that actually shows is that you think that at least in this area, you know better than Jesus. There must be things that the Lord does not know, has not yet been made aware of. If he knew what you know, then you, he would certainly see it your way and take this requirement off of you. Does that make sense? That's really what it's about. A personal, loving trust that compels obedience. It's a journey. Nobody does it perfectly all the time. Everybody grows into obedience to Jesus. That's why the Great Commission says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey how many things? Everything. All that I have commanded you, and look, I am with you always to the end of the world. Let me put this in very simple terms as a thought experiment. You're observing me as a disciple of Jesus because that is what I am. I will not always be a pastor. I will forever and always, even in heaven, be a disciple of Jesus. We won't be alike in heaven. He will still be in charge. The chief attraction of heaven is actually recognizing Jesus fully for who he is. So you're just, you have uh, sort of like watching a, a man in a experiment, you get the privilege of watching me struggle through my following to Jesus. You're watching me obey him in some areas and disobey him in others. In these areas that you, that I, Bruce Garner, am choosing to disobey Jesus, who do you think knows better, me or Jesus? Jesus. Now let's just turn that around and make it about you. Unless you're ready to profess total and complete obedience to Jesus in the areas where you know you're occasionally reminded by reading of Scripture, you'll hear a worship song, you'll read something in your Bible, and it'll sting you because this is the one area that you have not truly yielded regularly to the Lord. Who knows better in that area, you or Jesus? Did you hear the lack of enthusiasm that time? <laughs> Evaluating my discipleships like, Bruce, you moron, of course Jesus knows better in your situation. Maybe not so much in mine. We're in good company. Look in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. In Luke's telling, putting the Lord's Supper together is difficult chronologically because we have several accounts of it. Every gospel writer is choosing details and arranging the timeline to effect. So we're simply going to follow Luke's timeline. And I'm, I will bring in some things that we're told also happen in the Lord's Supper that Luke didn't tell us about. But really, Luke here has a very short and intense story. If you take it to heart, if you recline around the table with the disciples and you listen to their conversation and you hear Jesus' correction and especially you take to heart what Jesus said at the end, it will completely change your life. 
You have the potential, and this isn't hype. I'm three generations in ministry. I'm allergic to ministry hype. Almost every Christian book, almost every Christian conference, the speaker, the author says, this is the one you've been benighted until now. Read my book, listen to this one thing, and your life will be forever transformed. Allergic to it. But if you take this simple truth, not my message, if you just take Jesus at his textual word as recorded here in the Gospel of Luke, it moves you enough to take yourself off the throne of your life and enthrone him day by day. Someday you'll see the full blessing of the reward that he's going to describe here. Because according to Luke 22, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He is actually transforming it and fulfilling it and explaining that for them, this Passover celebration is different. They have gathered to celebrate the Jewish Passover, but Jesus is making it something greater. He is symbolically identifying himself as the lamb who will be sacrificed for their sin. He's taking the bread of the Passover supper, tearing it and passing it around, saying, this is my body, which is for you. He's taking the cups and pouring them out in the cup of blessing. He pours it out and says, this is my blood, which is going to make to you a better promise. A new covenant is being made, not according to the Mosaic law. I am making a new covenant with you. I am offering a whole other relationship and the seal and the guarantee of the promise I'm making and the life we're going to share is going to be my blood, which you can imagine here being poured out like I'm pouring the wine out to you so you can celebrate the Passover. Jesus is telling them, in other words, in every possible way, symbolically and verbally, that he is going to leave this final Passover supper, going to walk out of that room and be arrested and killed for them. That's the setting. He has told them that he will not enjoy another Passover with them until he can enjoy it with them in the future kingdom, which he will now begin to inaugurate, which his appearance on earth has brought near. They're standing, in other words, at a boundary marker in God's plan, in God's history. And after hearing all that, after hearing of his self-sacrifice, at taking the Passover and taking its elements, the various, the various bites of food and the various sips of wine, after taking all of those things in and hearing that he will no longer be with them, at least not for long, they start arguing. Look in verse 24. Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Just sit with that for a second. In Luke's telling, Jesus has already served the Passover. He's saying that these ancestral elements actually portray his coming death. And what did, how did they respond? They argued about what? You understand how ugly this is? Man, I'm on my way to die for you. Wow. How's that going to work out for us? 
They're arguing about the org chart. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Except for the traitor who was only part of this meal, Judas, who is going to go out, according to John, into a dark night on his way to receive a payment, a payment worthy of a slave to betray Jesus in private and to begin the mockery of a trial that will lead to his murder on a Roman cross. Aside from him, all of these disciples are actually with Jesus. But upon hearing that he is going to die for them, they apparently make this simple calculation. He's the best. I wonder which among us is better. Horrible. And that org chart discussion is being had among Christians. It's raging in every human heart to this day. It's ugly beyond words. And the reason Luke puts this story here is to teach you something, to teach me something. For disciples of Jesus, self-centered ambition is ugly and unbecoming. This would be like the person you most love in your life asking you to come over, sitting you down in their living room saying, I just got off the phone with the doctor. He tells me I don't have more than a few days left, so I want to make them count by sitting down and talking to you. And you say, by the way, where's the will? And how's that? My brother, did you uh, take care of us equally? How, How exactly is that going to work? It's ugly. It's hideous. Why is it here? Because it's so human. Upon hearing of the greatest love and the greatest sacrifice that anyone could ever make, the Son of God dying for sinful men for the forgiveness of their sins because he had none of their own self-centered ambition took over. And in any person, but especially in disciples of Jesus, it's ugly and unbecoming. So watch the corrective, verse 25. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He refers them to the pagan world. He says, outside these walls, the Romans are in charge. The great men who rule over this culture that surrounds us They exercise lordship over them, and in fact, those in authority are called benefactors. In other words, Jesus says the world around you, the world you've grown up in, is filled with kingly leaders, and they like to wield it. They like to remind people who is in charge, and they use their authority and what resources they have to dole out some things to the people under them, to keep them close, to keep them loyal, to keep them literally beholden to them. That was 2,000 years ago. Does that sound familiar today? Absolutely. Human government and human structures have changed, thank God, We're very far removed from the tyranny of Rome, but human nature, human character has not changed a bit. Human beings who are in charge always like to remind people that are in charge when challenged or questioned, they like to wield that authority. They like to remind people which way authority, power, and money is flowing to keep those people, if not loyal, at least subservient. Jesus says, that is the world you have grown up with. But look, verse 26, this is not only a word for them, this is a word for us. 
those of us who claim Jesus is king. Jesus said, verse 26, but not so with you. That is not the way the kingdom operates. This family that I'm instituting, the family of God, you are my brothers. You are not to wield authority over each other. You are not to be self-seeking in a selfish way. You are not to rule. You are not to lead the way the world has led you and the way the world has conditioned you to believe leadership works. Verse 26, not so with you. Then he's going to give two word pictures. Both of them are a little obscure to us because of the time and the distance. Work with me and I'll try to explain them. Jesus says categorically, you are not to live your life to seek ruling and wielding power and authority over people. No one should look to you as someone to whom they are beholden. You are not to remind people of who's in charge. You are not to wield any leadership that is given to you as a king who exercises lordship, who puts people in a position to thank you and call you a benefactor that they depend upon. Not so with you. Here come the word pictures. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. That first part of the sentence, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, that was kind of obscure to most Americans in the 21st century because we've flipped the way of the ancient world and the way of the world in the East. You start traveling east of here, you will very soon encounter on the globe cultures that esteem not youthfulness, not young age, but old age. Where if you're young, you literally have absolutely nothing to say. We're just the opposite of that. If you're young and good looking, we'll let you lead. Almost to the point of embarrassment. People who don't yet know anything are often given authority because they're attractive, they're young, they're easy to look at on camera. And actual experts, people with actual authority and wisdom, are relegated because they're old. That was not the way of the first century. In the, way of the, in the world of the first century, at every level, and beginning with the family, if you were young, you didn't have anything to say. If you didn't have some silver in your hair, and the more of it, the better. You can read that in Proverbs. That gray hair is a crown, it says in Proverbs. Until you get some wrinkles, until you get some mileage on the odometer, and hopefully they're city miles and you've been through a lot, you have nothing to say to the rest of us. Jesus says, among you, you disciples, you Christians, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. That's the first picture. Here's the second. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? We can understand that word picture a little bit more easily. You walk into a banquet hall and there are people sitting at a wonderful feast being served by carefully uniformed people who glide up, put the food down, ask if there's anything else, and then quietly recede. You're watching that. Some people are feasting. Others are flitting in and out, bringing more and more food and more and more drinks. Who's in charge in that room? The people feasting, right? 
They are literally being served. That one's more understandable. Who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Here's the foundational part. Here's why you should line up, not only under Jesus, but you should seek in your attitude and disposition to line up under other people as well. Jesus said at the end of verse 27, but I am among you as the one who what? Serves. Wow. Jesus says, my whole life with you. These men have been with Jesus roughly three years. At every point, in every decision, they have been amazed by two things. He is undeniably the Lord in charge of everything, including them. He's in charge of storms. He's in charge of food. He's in charge of disease. He's in charge of demons. He's even in charge of death. He is most certainly in charge of them. And even now, and especially tonight, even though he is undeniably the leader, Even though he is undeniably the elder, he has always and only served them. That's what the Passover portrayed to them. His body torn, his blood spilled, and it's all going to be for them. And Jesus says, as I am doing for you, you will now do for each other. This reverses the way the world works in the 21st century. And if we're not very careful, we'll bring in the world of marketing and customer service into the family of God, into the local church, because the kingdom is about service. And the kingdom of this world says, serve us. I will contribute. I will be part as long as I am benefited as long as it's very clear who's in charge and who the benefactor is and which way the blessings and the service and the help flow, I will stay with you. The kingdom of God is about service. The world says instead, serve us. And this week I've been reminded of so many acts of service within this family of God. Let me give you just a few. And if I leave yours out, Forgive me, there's literally no time, and I actually don't know all that happens here to thank you sufficiently for embodying the spirit, the attitude of Jesus. Over here to my right is a brand new, freshly remodeled room for children that we have transformed in the pandemic and actually wheeze a lot of people. I didn't have anything to do with it. Some of your brothers gave hundreds, and I'm sure if we counted them all up, perhaps thousands of hours in skilled, hard labor over there to transform a room into a brand new space to teach children. The children who are in that room being taught at this moment are being taught by volunteers, people who see themselves as part of your family in the faith, who serve and teach and listen to your kids and teach them to pray and teach them the words of Jesus simply because they love Jesus and they want to serve you. The extraordinary financial generosity that this church family has poured out during the pandemic, the most generous year of giving ever, only can prove one thing, that people are putting Jesus and others ahead of themselves. Because for weeks we didn't even see each other. For weeks we couldn't even be together. Now things are coming back together and we're starting to see some daylight. Thank God. 
but every week, every week through your loving, your serving, and your giving, you are embodying what Jesus is talking about here, putting others ahead of yourself. This week, I called a very elderly widow in our church who is, in earthly terms, all alone. She has outlived almost all of her family. She is very much alone except for you. And I'm telling this story here because she watches the 9 a.m. service and I don't want to make her cry. When I called, I discovered that one of you was already over there repairing something in her house. And the only thing that brought that man and that elderly woman together was the love of Christ. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me and how much it pictured for me what Jesus is talking about here. In the kingdom, the way up, according to Jesus is down. The leader is the one who will position himself as a servant. The one who actually knows something will put himself at the service of those who know absolutely nothing. And if we get this wrong, we're going to do some terrible things in the name of Jesus. What power and authority and leadership mean in the kingdom of Jesus is to serve others. The kingdoms of this world believe that authority means power over people. And listen to me carefully here. When the church of Jesus Christ starts pursuing power instead of service, it no longer looks like the church of Jesus Christ. It looks like the kingdoms of this world. And it has nothing to offer this world because it becomes a sad copy of everything that people who are looking to Jesus have known their entire lives. You could ask yourself, well, how could the disciples be so hard-headed, or maybe I should say soft-headed and hard-hearted? May I recommend to you that we not judge them too strongly? You see, in this same Lord's Supper, Jesus is going to rise and take the dress of a slave. Because that was a borrowed room. You may remember this is from John 13. That was a borrowed room. They weren't in their own, one of their own homes. They were gathered as a spiritual family, far from their own homes, gathered in a borrowed room where everything had been provided except for the servant that was customarily there to do something important, something very menial, something very humbling. Remember what it was? That servant was there at the door, not to participate in the meal, but to do what? Wash their feet. And what happened in the upper room that night is that 12 men filed past the wash basin, looked down at the towel, looked at the basin, looked at the water, and made this simple calculation. I don't know who's washing our feet, but it won't be me. And every one of them, I'm convinced, even the traitor Judas, if only to maintain the charade, would have gladly washed the feet of Jesus. They don't have any trouble serving him. Their question is whether they're willing to serve each other. And their answer to this point is no. We won't wash each other's feet because we're not servants. And now Jesus is saying, my whole life with you has been as one who what? 
serves, even though I rule, even though I'm the king, even though you call me Lord, my stance, my attitude towards you without surrendering my identity, my entire stance towards you has been not as one who is a king, though I am, I am among you as one who serves The question, dear Christian, is not whether you will gladly and joyfully wash the feet of Jesus. The question is whether you'll wash the feet of another believer. Whether you will come alongside the poor, whether you will receive slights and insults and persecution from people who hate you and hate Jesus and welcome them as opportunities to be rewarded and love them and pray for them in the name of Jesus that Jesus will change them as he one day changed you. It's amazing. In the kingdom, the way up is down. Here is the motto for Christians who take the lesson from Luke chapter 22. Service in the kingdom means that Jesus is above all and others are above self. We put Jesus ahead of everything. We put Jesus ahead of ourselves and we put others before we place ourselves. When is that decision made? It can only be made daily. You cannot decide in this moment that Jesus will be at the top of the org chart and you will push everybody else up below him, putting yourself at the bottom. That decision will serve you only in this moment. The next time you're mistreated and you feel the sting of being wounded, then you'll have a decision to make of whether to actually act as a servant lovingly in the name of Jesus. Someone said it's always easy to claim to be a servant of Jesus until somebody treats you like a servant. Then you find out what you really believe about yourself. How can the disciples be so soft-headed and hard-hearted? I was telling you, let's not be too hard on them. Because it's very obvious from what follows that they, even though he's broken the bread poured out the wine and told them what he's about to do, it's very obvious that they do not understand it. Peter has previously told the Lord that he should never die on the cross. For his trouble, he was told, get behind me, Satan. Peter obviously still does not understand because what he's actually going to try to do in the next few hours is take out a weapon and try to kill a man who is there to help arrest Jesus. They don't really understand what you and I understand. It's been poured out in wine. It's been broken in bread. It's been explained to them with words. But they cannot yet conceive that the one who is the Son of Man, the one promised in the book of Isaiah, the one promised in the book of Daniel, the one who was to be born in Bethlehem, the one who was to be betrayed by a, for a few pieces of silver, he's right in front of them and he's on the way to die for them. They don't really understand it. You do. You can read four accounts of the crucifixion. You can read the end of the book. We have better evidence and more clarity on the fact of who Jesus is, and yet we refuse often to serve him. Let's not be too hard on these frightened disciples. And then, here's the twist in the story, and I'm done. This is amazing. The story's not over. It doesn't end in verse 27. If I were writing the story, if I were taking the place of the Lord, and you can thank God that I didn't and I can't, I would have said simply, I am among you as one who serves, and that would have been it, but Jesus doesn't stop there. 
he understands that they have a deep desire to be rewarded. They have it in their hearts to stand out. And he doesn't deny that such a thing is possible. Look, verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. It's a big statement. Jesus had thousands of followers. At the end, very few were left. You see, the whole time Jesus was walking on earth, he was doing then what he still does today. He's probing the hearts and the minds of people to see who really trusts him more than they trust themselves. In John chapter 6, for instance, you can read of the feeding of the 5,000. You can read that thousands were fed. They try to make Jesus king by force. They approach him the next day, and he tells them, you are not interested in me. You're only following me because you got fed. Here's the real basis, he said. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Wow. What's that mean? That's brutal. Is it cannibalistic? No. Jesus is saying, you're only following because you got your belly full. Here's the real thing. You have to depend on me the way you currently depend on food for life. If you throw yourself entirely into my hands that I alone can save you, then you'll be my disciple. What was their response and said? You can read it in John chapter 6. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can put up with this? And it says, from that day forward, many of his disciples no longer walked with him. What did Jesus do? Jesus turned to the 12 and said, are you leaving too? Jesus could have benefited from a seminary class on church growth. This is, not when you, this is not what you do when the crowd is leaving. When the crowd is leaving, you try to reason with them. You try to plead with them to come back. Not Jesus. Many are apparent disciples. Many are following him physically, but their heart is far from him. They are in it not for him. They are in it for themselves. They have selfish, earthly ambitions. And Jesus thins the herd. He thins out the crowd. Peter, who I relate to more than any other disciple, poor, indecisive, hot-headed, sometimes frightened Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of life. We're with you. And now at the very end, Jesus recognizes that. He knows exactly who they are. The traitor has gone out under the pretense, apparently, of serving the poor. Even in his betrayal, Judas portrayed something he wasn't. He portrayed a servant when he was actually a self-interested man. But Jesus says to those who are really with him, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, let this blow your mind if you've never seen it, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I thought we were to be servants. Now the Father is going to give you a kingdom and you're going to give us a kingdom as well? We won't be serving. We'll be at the table with you being served. We'll be feasting. We will be amazing we will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What in the world? Listen, these disciples, rabbinical school dropouts. 
Every Jewish boy received basic instruction in the scriptures. Every family was looking, and the teachers were especially, they were looking for aptitude to learn and teach the scriptures to others. What is the most common profession among the disciples? Fishermen. Plus one guy who sold out to the Roman Empire and another guy who was a freedom fighter who wanted to kill the, first, the other guy. It's a motley crew if there ever was one. If they ever had a chance at trying their hand at learning and teaching the scriptures, every single one of these men washed out. They're failures in the eyes of Israel. They're ordinary people of no particular importance. What Jesus is saying, take this to heart, Christian, this is the part that can change you. You sacrifice for me now. You serve me and you serve others now. You serve others in the humble, self-sacrificial, dying-to-yourself way that I have served you. I am among you as one who serves and you will be rewarded in ways that you cannot even imagine. See, the biblical teaching of rewards is undertaught. I don't have time to explain to you. That will be in a future sermon. I'll let you know when it's coming. The sorts of things that Jesus was talking about here. Here in the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't even explain. So I can't tell you exactly what he means when he says that these disciples will sit on thrones judging the same nation that once rejected Christ. In the kingdom, God is restoring everything, including apparently Israel. And these washouts, dropouts, never was disciples of his. They are going to be granted authority and privilege and wealth and a kingdom and a feast beside Jesus that they cannot even begin to imagine now. The great mistake of the Christian life is to make a so-called decision for Jesus. Imagine that your sins are forgiven now so you can live any way you want and to make your life as good and as comfortable and prestigious and wealthy as it can be here right now, occasionally using Jesus as some sort of glorified life coach. And the invitation from Jesus is not to do that. Self-centered ambition is ugly, but take this to the bank, Christian. Jesus will reward every sacrifice we make for him. Not one prayer offered, not one act of service extended, not one bit of forgiveness given in love to others, not a dollar invested in the local church and in the kingdom of Christ will be passed over by God. Jesus will be no man's debtor. No person at the judgment seat of Christ, which is the doctrine I need to explain to you, where life on earth is rewarded in eternity. And someday you will see the disciples apparently ruling and enjoying as Jesus promised them here. Not one person encountering Jesus has ever said to him, boy, I wish I wouldn't have trusted you that much. You ever regretted trusting somebody? I have. Thankfully, to this point, no one who matters most in my life but just like you, I've been stabbed in the back. I've been betrayed. I thought somebody was some, something entirely different from the person they actually turned out to be. Jesus, you can't make that mistake with him. The real reason we don't obey him is that we don't believe he's as good as he actually is. We don't think he's as faithful as he actually is. We don't think he's as generous as he actually is. Listen to how things have changed. Jesus said to the disciples, you are those who have stood with me in my trials. Did you see that? 
Luke chapter 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. The trials of Jesus are over. They had to stand with Jesus in his trials. His trials are over. He's enthroned. Here's the gracious promise he made to you. He has no more trials. He will stand with you in yours. If you'll only serve, if you'll only sacrifice, if you'll only love, if you'll only forgive, if you'll only give in his name, he'll stand with you in every trial that comes to you as a result of that, and someday he will reward you more richly than you could ever have imagined. I know that's true because the Bible says that no human eye has seen and no human mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who, what? Love him. And because of their love, they obey him. And they position themselves not as leaders, not as big wheels, not as shot callers. They position themselves every day of their discipleship to Jesus as servants. Let's pray together. Let me make a final plea to those watching at home and to those here in person. If you haven't trusted Jesus, he is your only chance That's the message. The message is Jesus. He alone can save you from sin. He alone can give you new life. He can only make eternity possible and worthwhile. If you haven't trusted him, let me invite you in the name of Jesus to give up on yourself, tell him you're sorry for your sin, and say, Jesus, please save me this morning. And let us know. Send me a text. Send me an email. Fill out the card that's in your bulletin if you're here in person. But I'm guessing that on time change Sunday in a brisk, breezy morning, most of the people who came, at least in person, are Christians already. How's the org chart looking? Is it really Jesus above all and others ahead of yourself? If it's not, could you talk to the Lord right now about making some changes in the org chart? I bet you're like me. I bet you're always trying to eye your own position and hoping it improves. Listen to your Lord. I am among you as one who serves. That's where you should be, Christian. That's where I should be, Christian, trusting that every reward, every sacrifice made will be richly rewarded. Lord Jesus, thank you for those who have heard the good news. If there's a single person here this morning who hasn't trusted you as Savior, I pray that they would at this moment call out to you for mercy and ask you to save them from their sins. And Jesus, help us to flip the org chart from the way the world would have it. Position ourselves as servants. Servants to others because we are servants to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.